Oh, hello there. I didn't. I didn't see you there. This is uh, this is a little warning right here. Word to the wise: we are pretty explicit in what we talk about, and we tackle content that have pretty adult themes. I don't know. Some might say, but we are certainly entering spoiler territory. If you haven't caught up with us, which this week would be through chapter twelve of Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. Have a great day. I love you. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Uh, yeah, you should. But also, I figured I'd uh, I'd take it down a notch a little bit with that intro. I wanted to be a little bit more soft-spoken. Well, yeah, why'd you to get the, so saucy and sexy the, there? <laughs> I don't know. Appeal to the the more uh, sensitive of our listeners, including myself. I consider myself a very sensitive person. Oh. As you know, Crossland. Do you? Yeah, I very do. sensitive. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> we, we, we didn't make that entire joke about the fact that you've cried three times in your life in the HowlerPod uh, episode. That didn't... That, mm, those are wildly exaggerated claims. You're right. It was twice. <laughs> <laughs> See, exaggerated by 50%. No, I just... I don't know. We've done the same thing every time. I wanted to change it up a little bit so today is our second episode covering iron gold by pierce brown and we are going to talk about chapter 7 through 12 i didn't fuck it up this week how wonderful you you didn't but you thought you did i did panic I did panic because I was editing the episode and I just heard myself reiterate the same numbers. And earlier that same day, you had called me and said, "Okay, so we read up until 12, right? And I was like. (laughs) And I said yes at the time. And then at like 10 or whatever, when I finished editing, I was like, PJ, 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 uh, no, don't. You have to read the extra chapter. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to look like an idiot. And uh, you're like, well, I don't know why there's so many conflicts. Like, is the schedule wrong? And then we went and looked at the schedule and like the books and both of those are right. And it's like, nope, my dumbass this morning was just incorrect. So fun, fun times for everyone. Um, But before that, we're going to talk about what we're drinking. Before what? Before we talk about the book. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but right. we're going to talk about the book while we talk about what we're drinking. Because True. it has to do with the book. And we both made the same cocktail. So what's what's super interesting is I think it was the second or third week of the show ever uh, that we'd been recording Red Rising. And I went, okay, I need to save and bookmark this. This is a cocktail that we're going to drink later that's made from the show. And I saved it in our Discord way back when in September. And we finally got to break, break it out. Yes, the Venusian Fury. Venusian? Yes. Ven- Venusian? I like Venu- Venusian because it's it's kind of... Venusian sounds good. Venusian Fury kind of has that sexy undertone like you had at the beginning of the episode, you know? Yeah, there we uh, go. Uh, a little bit of... <laughs> the, the real heavy breathing directly into the microphone is what sells it, Crossland. But this is a recipe that we got directly from Pierce Brown himself. He posted it on Twitter. At face value, it sounds like a fucking terrible cocktail. <laughs> yeah, it sounds horrible. It it really does, and I'm pretty sure that I read a number of the comments, a number of people replying in the comments saying that they did not enjoy it. But I don't know. I kind of like it. I'll I'll run through what Pierce Brown says it is, 
And then mm. there's a couple substitutions that each of us had to do just from specifically squid ink not being available in our areas. I looked, I tried, I tried so goddamn hard and I, I was just too late to order it off Amazon. So I didn't. But anyway, going off of just more lead up, more lead up to all of this, <laughs> we decided to do it as close to the stated recipe that Pierce Brown put out as possible this week. And then next week, I don't know if Crossland's going to do the same thing, but I'm going to try to refine it and make like an actual tasty cocktail using that as inspiration. So that's that's the plan. But as is a Venusian Theory is one and a half ounces of cream de cacao, one ounce of spiced rum, half an ounce of fernet branca, half an ounce of chocolate stout, an eighth of a table or eighth of a teaspoon, eighth, eighth of a tablespoon of squid ink, and then garnished with either a either a dash of cayenne or a twist of fennel or not fennel, a twist of uh, star anise, which I don't understand what that means. So I just put star anise, like a star anise pod in my in my cocktail and then optionally serving it on a salt rimmed or in a salt rimmed glass so what i did i also made a video of myself like I, I recorded myself making this cocktail i forgot to add the stout during the video i added it later but i'll post it on instagram and make that note as well but instead of the uh, squid ink i added a dash of soy sauce to kind of give that umami flavor a little bit more saltiness. It's not fishy like the squid ink would be, but I think the squid ink is primarily there for color anyway, because it comes out more of a brown than a black, which I think is what he's going for. I rimmed it. I did a, a basically a third of the glass rimmed with a mixture of salt and cayenne. And then I just put a, a an anise pod on top of the cocktail, just kind of floating in it. So Nice. Yeah. He also doesn't, he doesn't specify how to, what to do mixing it, like stirring it or tossing it. I shook it and then added the, added the stout afterwards. I think tossing it probably would be a better idea. You get a little bit Hmm. less dilution that way. So the color is going to come through a little bit better, be a little bit darker. And you could add the stout and mix it a little bit better that way. I stirred mine and it is pitch black. I mean, some of that, I think, I think that might also come from my stout. So the one thing that we were talking about when we were going through this is we, we ultimately did both make the substitution for the squid ink. You put in soy sauce. I actually didn't add any soy sauce or squid ink. I didn't, I didn't bother to sub because I figured it was mostly for color and maybe a little bit of umami, but I wanted to keep it as close as possible to what the recipe was with that one omission. However, I, Came to realize when I actually poured my drink and drank it, and we were talking about it right before the show, that I didn't use spiced rum. I used barrel-aged rum, and mm-hmm. it is awesome, and my cocktail is great. I, this is really good, and I would actually make this again. It was crazy. The dash of cayenne, I accidentally had forgotten, and I'd sipped it, and I was like, oh, this is okay, and I threw in the cayenne uh, when PJ reminded me that it needed to be there, and I was like holy shit this is actually way better than i thought it was yeah this is something this is something that i'd have again it adds a layer of complexity but i i mostly just get chocolate out of this i think Mm. i think i like the combination of flavors that are playing there but i think i'd go lower on the cream de cacao and maybe maybe just swap the the rum and the cream de cacao volumes a little bit higher with the rum and maybe go like 0.75 ounces of fernet branca just to add a little bit more bit, uh, bitterness there. I actually added afterwards, like you added the cayenne, I added a dash of Peychaud's bitters because it's mm. got that anise flavor to begin mm-hmm. with. I think it 
it amplified it a little bit, but I'm mostly just getting chocolate. Oh, also, I also just have an aged rum, but I spiced it myself overnight with cinnamon stick, a little bit of ginger, some black peppercorns, some nutmeg, and a few other spices that I had in there. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll put it in the in the description on Instagram and probably in the in the cocktail notes on our website. But it was a fun drink to make. Mm-hmm. I think I think what's super interesting here, we set out with the intention that we were going to make exactly how Pierce Brown said it should be made on Twitter and whatnot. He was a writer, not a bartender, though. So our thought was that we would remake it. And so we're going to take our own spin on it and see if we can, per per some of the changes even that PJ already said, we're going to see if we can spin it and make it maybe just a touch a hair better. I actually really like mine, so I'm a little bit shocked, but I, I, I kind of want to try to get a little bit of that fishiness, a little bit of that umami in, and maybe that also gives us time to do the squid ink and try that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. I should just order some. We'll see. Yeah. That'd be that'd be fun to play with. I mean, you can always make pasta. And then the yeah. second part, we're also mirroring. So we were having two of the same drinks for like the first time. This is the only time that we've actually really like truly doubled up on exactly what we're what we're drinking. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say we have a beer here that was gifted, sent to us from the great god Logan Zeff Hawaiian himself. He he mailed us a, a care package, which was fantastic. We're, we're very grateful. It is so cool that, you know, mm-hmm. anyone likes our show at all. Uh, crazy though to get get a gift which was absolutely insane so thank you but this also gave us a unique opportunity where we could actually try the same beers and talk about the beers so we today are drinking if the sun doesn't rise institution ale company which is a tropical ipa it's good it's a good beer we had one of the other ones the other night that i liked more this it's just very mellow and that's cool it is mellow. It, it's. I think we've we've both been like really on the East Coast train, and this is definitely more of a West Coast. A little bit more bitter, not in a bad way, and not in a like overwhelming way. You get the tropical flavors, but it's definitely a lot more subdued. The more I sip on it, the more it's really, really, really growing on me, and it makes me want Thai food. Actually, interesting. I, I, I love a good West Coast IPA with Thai food. Huh. You know, I've never intentionally thought of me- meal pairings with beers. I typically just order the beer that I like, not what I think would pair well. But good point. Yeah, I I like it. I definitely like it. Like if I had to throw a number at it, I'd probably throw like a seven and a half, eight. And I like West Coast more than you like. But no, no, that's not true. That's I like our, our, I like West friend, Coast more than you like West Coast. I love West Coast. Oh, I love West Coast. Okay, so we're on the same page. It's <laughs> Tim that doesn't page. like West Coast. It's Tim. Yeah. But I do I do like East Coast a little bit more. But I do I really like the bitter. And uh, yeah, it's it's, it's just been a while since I've really had one at my disposal. So it's good to good to kind of get back into it. I think it was more just a shock of difference between the East Coast and West Coast that mm. it was tough to jump right into it. <laughs> Fair. So it was because I had I had one earlier. It was uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm not going to bother talking about it. But with dinner, I had I had a different beer that was uh, an East Coast, which is just it's despite that they're despite the fact that they're both IPAs, they are wildly different styles. So mm-hmm. it's good to good to kind of recalibrate a little bit. And I'm I'm enjoying this more and more and more as I'm sipping on it. So. Cool. Props to you, Zeph. He he mentioned this is the, his second favorite of the group that he sent to us. So I mean. yes, yeah. For uh, for anyone who listened to our tequila special, I tried Terramana tequila, and if I'm making the judgment call, I would get Casamigos over Terramana, and that might sound like Sacrilege. a sin to Ben and Aaron. Sacrilege! But, I'm telling, I'm tattling on you. Oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aaron's gonna go leave us a one star review. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Certainly. All right, cool. So with that, let's get into the chapters. 
So chapter seven, we start with Ephraim. Chapter seven is called The Arbiter, which I think is an interesting title. It kind of gives this sort of raw, judgmental tone to Ephraim, which I think is is fair. I mean, he's numb like a, like an arbiter, maybe. Yeah. But obviously the arbiter is also referring to the white the, that he meets with. The white. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That distributes the goods. I, I was thinking him being the arbiter and that he distributes the goods to his to his people oh i think i think they're both the arbiters in their own right right i think there's a direct reference and then there's the the sort of indirect which is also ephraim is an arbiter but he also had to deal with an arbiter which you know direct and indirect connections so totally with that speaking speaking of that specific point because i don't think it's mentioned in our notes like you don't have a, a little tag on it but he talks about showing them like showing them his data pad while he's like distributing the money. And he mentions that it's, there's something to do with seeing his fingers like distribute it. That's more satisfying, but he doesn't mention the fact that there's then complete openness about what he's being paid versus everyone else. And that it truly is fair. Like they're all seeing his actual funds mm-hmm. as he's distributing it. So I, I that's interesting. I didn't, I, I was curious about what his thoughts were on that and i figured he would have mentioned it but didn't it's it's interesting because i think that ephraim is a fair person and that that lines up with that of his personality right like he doesn't go against agreements so far as we know and so far as we've been shown so Mm -hmm. i think that that kind of plays into his sort of honesty and openness even if he's kind of a brooding motherfucker yeah he uh he at the very least is honest and open well, not open. He's at the very least honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's probably definitely not open. Way. Definitely not open. Pretty, pretty closed off, I'd say. Yeah. Or fair. Maybe fair is the better word. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we meet up with Ephraim and he's having a no good, very bad, least fun day. <laughs> and he's he's clearly uh, brooding about something, you know, the worst day of his life. PJ, if you had to imagine what the worst day of Ephraim's life is, what do you think it would be? Mm, I don't know. Probably someday he was trapped on an elevator that he got out of because um, we know that <laughs> happened from the from the previous book i mean uh, yeah okay <laughs> oh it could be that time that he found out that his fiance was dead oh maybe maybe <laughs> maybe it's it's that just so funny it. it's hmm. just so funny that we don't get that answer <laughs> it's just assumed <laughs> like <laughs> nowhere in here is it like Ephraim's having a bad day because it's the anniversary of Trigg's death it's just Ephraim's in a bad fucking mood <laughs> for the entire chapter yeah drinking himself to sleep and whatnot just oof it is it is interesting so something that we talked about last last episode was uh was kind of around the idea that like not a whole lot has changed for some of the colors inside of the hierarchy and Ephraim really puts puts the pins the tail on the donkey like literally he says he says little has changed for most of them new masters same caller and it kind of feels like that same indictment that we had yeah on the uh house yeah program. it's um there's there this seems to be a theme across everything like life sucks still what, what happened how did this happen fuck mm-hmm. yeah it's i mean what do you what do you think about that um, I think it's inherently truthful to what's going to happen after a major revolution at that scale without the foresight and without the planning to reinstate some sort of order to the chaos that is going to be wrought. It, there has to be some sort of hierarchy 
And well, I guess there doesn't have to be, but there, there are too many people in the society for all of them to be able to benefit from a liberation like this. Yeah, it's definitely difficult. And like you said, the really the, the biggest issue with the whole revolution is sort of the inability to get everyone at once. And you're never going to be able to purge out sort of the idea without a gen, without generations of change right like mm-hmm. the the colors are still going to exist even if we say that they don't for a bit and it might take a generation or two for that to really fix itself fully without fully at least, just like at least a generation or two if not more yeah right right it's it's going to take time to repair sort of the the generational trauma and i think i think the mirroring is very explicit it, it honestly gives me um Reminds me of World War II and sort of the Nuremberg trials and things like that. If if we use that as a comparison point for society, it's as though the Nazis really still were fighting even after they lost the war. Like the little pockets were still putting up fights. And that's basically what we're seeing. Yeah, certainly. The other sort of reeling it back into uh, to this canon, mm-hmm. it, it, it brings me back. Nazis to- are canon. What do you mean? G- yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to continue. Uh, but it brings me back to the sort of mantra of the jackal towards the end in that people can't prosper without sacrifice of others. And in this situation, a lot of these reds and a lot of these lower colors, despite the fact that the, they're the ones that the liberation was like fighting for, are the ones being sacrificed in in the in the in the depth of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, just to talk, to talk to something that happens a little bit later, we find out that 200,000 obsidians died in the taking of Mercury, which is a huge blow to their their species. We know that there were there were fewer than uh, what was it, 200,000 on the pole of Mars. So what you're telling me is that like you basically that they were able to rally in Morningstar, I should say. So basically what you're telling me is that you eliminated more than were on the poles of Mars like more than the clans that we had in the last book. That's nuts. That's man. I'd be pissed. Yeah. And I mean, there are just, there's just so much strife and it's hard to say whether or not that was born out of the liberation or if it's always been there and it's just kind of showing its face and having a new person to blame for it. But man, there's, there's, there's no easy way for them, for everybody to kind of live happily because yeah. there wasn't enough foresight on it, I feel like. Oh, oh man. Who do you think could be the mysterious benefactor requisitioning F's talents, Ephraim's talents? Um, we figure out from the white that there's someone behind the curtain, but they feel that their their collection is complete. Do you think that that's an important character? Do you, what, who do you think? What do you think? I think it's Mustang. What are some thoughts? You think it's Mustang? Okay. Yep. I think it's Mustang. This is this is a razor, an ivory handled razor. Is it that is it Darrow's? No, it's Selenius Alun. Okay. So it's the okay, original okay. conqueror. Gotcha. For some reason I, I thought it was not I, I thought they didn't share whose it was. They didn't immediately. It wasn't immediately okay. shared. Then I then I just missed it. Yep, it's all good. It's all good. So well that kind of shoots my theory in the dick. <laughs> I was thinking it was Mustang was just kind of slowly and anonymously collecting relics of her of her past and things that were important to her hmm. or the people she loved. But, you know, never mind. We'll I'm still going with theory. Mustang. Nope. Still, still going, going with Mustang. Mustang. Okay, cool. 
Interesting. So we get to the bar, which is a really interesting scene, of course. Uh, Ephraim really doesn't like hanging out in this kind of a bar. He gets kind of bummed about the whole thing. He's just having kind of a bummer of a day. He goes home after he gets the money and drinks himself, drinks, falls asleep, gets a text, wakes up and goes to the bar that he's supposed to meet everyone at to give him the money for the heist. And that's where Volga orders the Venusian Fury and has one in front of her. And hey, that's what we're drinking today. As dark as Atlania Grimace herself. Mm hmm. Yeah, mine is uh, apparently less dark than yours, but it's yeah, still pretty, is, pretty dark. Mine is very dark, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting, though. All of the various drinks and kind of the commentary on the bars themselves. Dano and and uh, Dano Scytha, Syra, 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 the green. I always forget. Uh, I, think I, it's Syra. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Syra and Volga are all like definitely having a good time. But when after distributing the money, like you made mention of, she very Volga like wants Ephraim to hang out, but Ephraim wants nothing to do with that. But it's it's interesting. I really the the like outstretched hand of friendship to me just has this like I wish Ephraim were nicer to Volga here. I don't know. Did you feel yeah, that? Um, like she kind of has this puppy dog ish like feeling. Yeah, I, I felt that a little bit. But at the same time, he's he's going through some shit, man. Like this is a tough day for him. And it's it's tough to say that. Yeah, but it's been a decade, dude. Get over it. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, Kinda. you're right. But now, I, but I mean, it's clear, actually been like 11 or 12 is, years. But clearly this is something that hits him so fucking hard that he's he's acting out like this mm -hmm. while he's been popping uh, Zolodones all fucking day. Like he's he is completely numb to any sort of feelings and he's still feeling this. Like he takes one he takes one like at the bar. Yes, he pops another one there. I really like the paragraph right before he goes to the bar, and I just this just came to me. It's it's such a great line. I've I've stretched past Frang and floating amidst that wretched digital sea, standing in front of the city that never sleeps, surrounded by a billion breathing breaths, I feel the dark creep of despair. I pour one last drink, willing the numbness to spread. Oh man. Oh yeah. I just like it it feeds into exactly what you're saying, which is why I wanted to read it. He he really is, you know, willing that numbness to spread to me is just such it evokes such a particular particular feeling of of low i think that that's a very real emotion that pierce brown nailed certainly so f f is obviously hurting and basically shouts at volga and then leaves and that's where we leave ephraim for the week any other thoughts on ephraim or his chapter i'm i'm very quickly becoming invested in him i like him that's cool yeah I really like Ephraim. I, I really like all of the additions of the POVs, but I've I've got a soft spot for Ephraim for sure. I think it's so interesting, and I this is a little bit later in the notes, but I'll just jump ahead. All of these characters, all these POVs have distinct accents and voices that come through so clear. And Ephraim's like Earth, Kansan, middle of the country accent, uh, middle of America accent really comes through in the writing. And I think yeah. that's so interesting. It's so well done. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's fascinating. We'll, we'll talk about the other ones when we get there. But next chapter, we get to our final POV and the introduction of our fourth character here that we're going to talk about. Lysander. Sandy. Balloon. Sandy. <laughs> we're not calling him Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? And the chapter, The Gulf. 
so lie here he's he's having a whole time lie is not as good as sandy shit so i tried i, I, I think it. It just i think cassius calls happen. him sander a couple times yeah he did call him sander at least once which i mean works but sandy i like sandy <laughs> it does sound like a what, what the fuck are they called like parent teacher alliance <laughs> mom shouting after someone as they're like running away from a fundraiser you know sandy maybe, sandy come back maybe in like the 50s well fine <laughs> You're, that's fair the, the first image that i got in my head actually was like melissa mccarthy in like maybe a stephen king adaptation which would totally match with like 70s aesthetic uh, but okay. yeah it's exactly where my brain went anyway i got like grease yeah I, I mean i was thinking grease hairdo to be honest but well yeah. i mean one of the characters in grease is sandy See, I don't remember main, that. Is it the main character? I, I don't know. I, I could tell might you. be like one of the main characters. His name I could not. I could not tell you shit about Greece. Oh man, it's been it's been so many years since I've seen. I Greece. could do West Side Story. I could not do Greece. I couldn't. I don't think I could do West Side Story. I don't think well, I could break that one down so much. There weren't cool cars in in West Side Story like there were in Greece. <laughs> not as many cool cars. Not as no. many cool cars. Lysander is really interesting. He is a very hopeful character throughout this section, even when like it gets really bleak. And even like his family motto, Lux in Tenebris or Light from Darkness, enshrines enshrines him as like this beacon of hope of some kind. What kind of beacon? What what feeling does Lysander evoke from you and like the way that he's portrayed? Well, clearly he's he's kind of being he's coming across as the darrow of the previous trilogy as far as his disposition his outlook on people his need to care for everybody but there, there's a balance to it and I, I think that's what he's going to kind of re- represent is balance and the the bridging between the society and the republic looking at the benefits of both of them and looking at it from a very strangely unique perspective of somebody who is the grandson of the sovereign of the society that got murdered being raised for the last decade by the man who killed her and allowed the Republic to come through. Like it's a, it's a very unique position for him to be in. And, uh, I, I think it's molded him into someone with an outlook. That's very sort of middle of the road, bridge the gap balance kind of deal. That's, that's definitely interesting. I think that, the balance perspective makes a lot of sense from what we're given from him. He is very reflective on just about everything and very internal in the way that he thinks about all of these sort of different moments in the way that he really kind of parses out his past and his relationship with his grandma. And by all rights, he, if, if the society still exist, still existed proper and knew that he existed, he would be the sovereign. He would be in charge Right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. He's he's very, very interesting. If I could sum up the first part of the book that we've read so far, I think the entire book as it stands is really tangling with the concept of legacy. Lysander here is dealing with the legacy of his parents, his grandparents, and in part the legacy of Cassius himself, this sort of absolute war hero who, like you said, was a critical component to the overthrow of the Republic as well as also was like counter the rising at one point and against darrow lyria is dealing with a legacy of trauma and pain after being liberated ephraim is dealing with the pain and loss pain of losing someone that he loved dearly as well as a loss of faith in really everything 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just not 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 a not a good outlook there. If Andero is dealing with the legacy of his own rebellion, his own great liberation and in choice, and also literally dealing with his own legacy because of his kid, because he is a child. And his legacy as a father for that child as well. And it's all it's all so far really focused in on reflection. And for whatever reason, it really caught me in Lysander's chapter. And I just went, this this clicks, this clicks. That's what this book is. Yeah. So uh, somehow we've changed. Uh, turned heel a little bit on the theme of cooks. Now we're on something serious like legacy, which isn't as funny to joke about, but is the right call. <laughs> oh. Oh, don't worry. There, there are cooks, cooks to come. Yes. Okay. Thank God. It's <laughs> uh, good though. What do you, what do you think? Is there? Do you have any comments on kind of the idea of legacy or anything that I? Oh, skipped? I think you, you've nailed it. You've nailed the nail. You've hit the nail on the on the head. You, you hammered the nail. Uh, I coffined <laughs> the nail hammer. Yep. No, you, yep. you said it perfectly. It. There are so many. So many early themes that point to legacy being a very, very important part of this book. And I'm excited to see how it all pans out. Yeah, that makes sense. I need to speak real quickly about how cleverly named everyone in Lysander's immediate family is. Octavia, of course, being Octavius and Octavia the Younger, which we've talked about previously. Brutus, his father, son of Lorne. Interesting, funny. Haha, <laughs> Lorne naming his son after fucking guy who killed caesar uh, but also the guy who killed caesar is the father to the inheritor of the throne that's interesting anastasia nicolavinia being of course the russian daughter who was murdered during the ousting of the last czar of russia killed in a rebellion and those those two components that circle around rebellion being the parents of this character who has also been wronged by a rebellion is and born from it and born yeah born and like I, I, I would i would argue that most of his upbringing has been on this ship with cassius i mean 50 50 right because he was he was a little well, bit over fi- 10 he was he was 10 now he's 20 yeah but cut out half of the first part of his life at least like you don't remember shit before you're five yeah but golds are you know kind of kind of different uh, golds are kind of different i don't remember shit from shit from dick pre-five but yeah. I know I broke my leg. That's the only <laughs> thing I really remember. I almost drowned. Wow. That's my first memory. That's that's unfortunate. <laughs> there is so much to unpack in this chapter. Uh, there's there's just a, a bounty of wonder wonderful components. I think Pytha is an incredible blue. And I think that it's so interesting that all of the blues that we've been introduced to are so spunky in their own right. Like we don't see a whole ton of like the plain Jane robotic speaking blues that we were originally introduced to. The The fact that the second blue that we really kind of get to know is also kind of a dick is fantastic. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's simply because by their nature, they're kind of boring and why like why even if we had a name, I don't think we'd latch onto it, and I don't think we'd really care. Yeah, yeah. I, there were definitely named blues in Morningstar that I do not remember the names of. So yeah, there's at least exactly. one. Yeah. It, I mean, just because of their disposition, it's what makes them memorable. Yeah, it's it's also like blues are memorable because they're kind of these weird blank slates and these weird things. But that's not something you necessarily latch onto in the same kind of way. But Pytha is fantastic, and it does feel like she fits into. A, uh, a millennium falcon like crew that we have here between 
Cassius, who's a drunk, we found out. Um, Pytha, who's obviously this this kind of spunky, angry blue, who's kicked out of her own academy. And then we've got Lysander, kind of the the ex rich boy. <laughs> yeah, which is you know it's it's all it's all pretty interesting. They've got a they've got a good dynamic. Yeah, they do. I I love the. I guess it's, I don't know if it's this chapter or the next one, but the uh, the call out of Mother Hen, I think is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Calling her Mother Hen and her not liking that. That's pretty funny. I feel like that is next chapter, but I totally agree with you. It's whenever they just get onto the other ship. Oh, that's in this chapter. Like it's one of the first things that it's right when Cassius opens the comms after boarding the other ship. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's it's great. All three of them are fantastic here. And I think actually getting to see Cassius again in this sort of light in Iron Gold is very interesting and creates sort of a different portrait because you're seeing him not be you're not seeing him from Darrow's eyes anymore, which is interesting. But at the same time, I feel like we got so little of him so far. Like the only reason why it stands out as interesting is because we know him from before. But if you were coming into this being the first book in a new trilogy, you you wouldn't pick up on anything from him. I, I think they make a point that he was an ex-knight and like a, he, they give him back. But nobody knows what the knights are. Like it, you don't know who the knights are with this. Like there, there's so little that you'd actually if, if you came into this with fresh eyes. This is just me kind of re reiterating my point from last week about like this doesn't feel like a new trilogy. Like it, it doesn't feel separate enough yeah to be a yeah, standalone it's, it's, i was gonna say it's de- yeah it's definitely a new trilogy but it's yeah but not not standalone like you still need i think you need the first three books and that's becoming more and more clear to me as i'm reading sure i think you get a ton of context um from the books of course that they're very important it's why we didn't start here <laughs> that's true. just so i could Good bring point. you to dark age you know i think you get enough context but it's not perfect and it just leaves you wanting more like you said I think I'd be because confused. he's also he also is not trying to be over. He's not being overly verbose in a lot of these sections either. He's spending a lot more time in character and a lot less time directly in action or like just strictly action. That is um, violence. There's violence in this chapter or in this section that we're reading a lot. But in, in the hundred pages, it feels a little bit slower or at the very least, we're getting kind of more character moments, which is a, a good change, I think. Yeah, that's true. I also like kind of the entire perspective shift that we get here. Every time that we've been in space for the most part so far has been as a part of a massive fleet and these giant fleets smashing against each other. But to get this like very low to the ground, single ship feel going up to another ship and kind of helping trying to help them out. The Archimedes and the Vindabonda are it's just it's great. I can't I can't help but like really enjoy the sort of sci-fi elements that actually come out when it's not an armada and instead is kind of just a single vessel. Yeah. Yeah, it's I I I like this. I like this more. It's more intimate and more more it's easier to understand what's going on mm-hmm. with a single ship because the the fleet feels like each each ship is a, is its own unit. And you think of it as just kind of an organism as opposed to a vessel. Yeah, you got life inside of the you you actually like it kind of feels alive inside the Archimedes. There's even the moment where like I I think Lysander mentioned something about like Cassius having tripped and like hit his head and there's like a dent in the metal. And it's all those like tiny things. Specifically on the day that he found out about Darrow and 
Virginia's oh, Mustang. Wedding. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what that was, dense from. It was it was the wedding. But it, it because of those those moments and those descriptions, it makes it feel so much more personal, which is yeah. cool. But it feels more than it feels like the Millennium Falcon. It feels like Firefly. It feels yes. like Serenity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely. With without a doubt, I totally agree. I think it's got kind of that that like space piratey feel. And it's it's good. You know, there are a number of examples, of course, but I definitely, definitely agree with you. I love that Pierce also kind of pokes fun at Alien on uh, on page 68 <laughs> saying, talking about the space worms um, and like Lysander's looking out for space worms and Pytha's like, you fucking moron. Like, dude, there's nothing to eat. Like, how would they live? That doesn't make any fucking sense. And like, that's like, it feels like a very direct jab at <laughs> Alien from yeah. from Pierce, which is pretty, pretty great. Pretty, pretty funny. funny. Yeah. I loved it. It's, uh, it's it's that's worth a laugh. The, that's the first reference to another sci-fi work in this book for sure, for the first time in a while. Like you 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 had kind of hyped it up a little bit, like uh, like Morningstar would have a shit ton of references, and it didn't so much. It had like six, which is a lot more. Yeah, than but it was all packed towards the beginning. It was. It was. It was densely in the beginning. Yeah. So since the beginning of Morningstar, this is kind of the first sci-fi easter egg i'd say yeah yeah it's the it's kind of the first jab the the sort of second jab is next though and that's kind of interesting the little like internal monologue that lysander has about the great philosopher uh sagan is fantastic and the reason that i say it's kind of it's kind of a reference is because we haven't hit a point of enough separation from carl sagan to really call him any kind of philosopher or anything like that yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, some people a, certainly do, but he isn't revered in the same way that like Aristotle might be or the writings of Aristotle. At least not, not revered as a philosopher. And I, I think that's the specifically um, cool thing to cool way to think about this in that we think of him as a an astronomer and a scientist, but he's he's postulating ideas about space. And when space has been explored and they know what's what's up, whether or not he was right or wrong. He was he was a high pro- profile thinker in the field. Mm-hmm. Oh, good call. Which makes him, by all means, a philosopher. That's so, so interesting. So many of those I've actually like never directly drawn that connection. But so many of those folks ultimately were scientists of their own time, and we typically refer to them as philosophers now. But like Galileo, for instance, it like is cited for like philosophy and ethics and a number of different things in science, also responsible for a number of discoveries. But we we think of him as like the father of discovery and a, a great thinker, like you said. Yeah, exactly. But in his time, he was a scientist. Right. Well, and a, a pagan. But well, yeah, yeah, got he got executed for that. So. <laughs> oof. Yep. <laughs> Big oof. But uh, the, womp, the whole womp. Carl Sagan. <laughs> The whole Carl Sagan monologue, I think, is is really great. Uh, it, it's a great moment for Lysander, and we kind of already touched on this on all the different aspects that these characters have. Ephraim being from Earth, of course. Lyria having this sort of deep Irish kind of roots, the the true red roots. Darrow, this kind of civilized version of that same thing that Lyria is, you know, brought up into into society. And Lysander, this sort of like prim and proper British gold flair to his language. And I think that comes especially through in each of their sort of prosaic monologues more than anything else, Mm -hmm. where 
especially in this context, Lysander is sort of musing on the possibility of humanity without scarcity. And I think that that paragraph is some of the best writing that Pierce has put in the book series so far. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, I actually went through and re-listened to that paragraph a bunch of times because I, I was driving around and I'm listening to the, so I read I, I've talked about this before, but I read the book and then I listen on the audiobook. But then as I have more time and as as soon as long as I've got it done ahead of time, I like listen to it again at like one and three quarters speed. <laughs> so it's just but I I had listened through this chunk a bunch of times and I was like going back and kind of skipping backwards and re-listening to it. And eventually I had to just like turn it back to one times and listen to it a couple more times. But I, I really, I, I loved that passage. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And each of their little pieces of prose that we talked about, I mean, with Ephraim, it was obviously the one that we just talked about, the numbness here. It's the Sagan Lyria. It's the, the goodbye to her father kind of moment. And Darrow is all the time. <laughs> we've, we've had Darrow enough to know what his internal monologues are like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, each of those three very, feel very, very distinct and brilliantly yeah. done, brilliantly characterizing all these all these wonderful points of view. Yeah. yeah. Certainly. The mind's eye. What do you make of it? What do you what do you think of when you think of the mind's eye as it's described on the page, page 70? So because it was described earlier with uh, with Ephraim, mm-hmm. what I had in my mind of what it was, was the uh, sort of digital m- monocle that the that the white had and was examining the razor with i figured i figured it would make kind of make sense um so i i sort of likened it to the witcher sense if you've played the witcher i don't mm-hmm. know if you ha- have have you i have it the witcher sense doesn't work that well for me because of my incredible color blindness oh right yes yes yeah. you can't tell uh, however on the switch the graphics are low enough where they actually created a different polygon for it and i can play it interesting really crazy i bought it and i am like halfway through but i have i cannot play it in high graphic quality or hd because you can't tell what it i can't fucking see it yep (laughs) (laughs) but i i imagine the looking through the mind's eye to be something like that of kind of focusing on movement and tracks and things like that brain oh the the movement tracking with the mind's eye and you're i was trying to connect where you were connecting the line from it being an attachment to there but that makes sense i get like looking through it 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 allows you to see i don't know glean glean things from from what's in the area in a in a more visual way yeah yeah it's it's really interesting i i like the comparison of um toff bayfong's abilities from avatar the last airbender where oh, you know, okay. she's blind and she like slams the ground and the metal and all the sound reverberates and she feels it back or daredevil who's also my favorite superhero who you know constantly is kind of dealing and using sounds to sort things out it gives me very similar kind of feelings of that filter over i mean everything. it's it's which is also the witcher like echo location so does that make daredevil batman daredevil is by truly, for all intents truly, and purposes truly batman yes he is better batman in every way i think he's he's batter man <laughs> batter more batter <laughs> the use of the mind's eye though that we, we get on the vindabona for the first time and we also get introduced to another term after we notice all of the gore and blood all over the walls and the sort of astonishing scene we we find out that the oscamani 
are there. And what a terrifying name for exiled pirate obsidians. Literally the Ashmen. And you mentioned this earlier, but to me, the Eskimani call out and all of sort of the gore and the bloody details that we got reminded me directly of the Reavers from Firefly. Just like how hardcore they were. The bodies on the outside of their ship. That was the thing that did it for me. I was like, oh, shit. I remember the Reavers. I was terrified. Yep. 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 Yeah. God, now I want to watch Firefly. again. Yeah, it's only 10 episodes. It's pretty easy to do. (laughs) 10 episodes and a movie. Okay, 12 episodes then, if you want to count the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Askamani, Oscar, a terrifying, terrifying name. Yeah. And yeah. them themselves, pretty, pretty scary. Just brutal. Uh, obviously, white hair, much like. Oh, is every obsidian white haired? Or is it just the ones that we've met? I think it's just the ones that we met because I'm pretty sure I remember a black haired obsidian somewhere, but could have been dyed. Yeah, fair enough. But just long, stringy, white, white hair. Did it say braids? I imagined braids. Yeah, I, I also imagined braids. I don't remember if it said braids. Okay, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it did. Then, if both of us imagined braids, I I think there's something that sticks with Ragnar and sort of braids and Steffi. And oh, good point. And like okay. just just kind yeah. of the the whole the whole culture. Clearly, braids are a thing. Um, but it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm with it though. I understand. You're you're with it. <laughs> I'm with it. I'm hip to it, you know? <laughs> uh, so I really like the moment that uh, Lysander has as well, where he says, in this war, it's it's just a quick one-off line between him and Cassius. They're kind of chatting about, could this be Darrow's men before they come to the conclusion that it's the Ascomani? Lysander's like, it could be Darrow. And Cassius is like, no, it couldn't. Darrow wouldn't do this just to civilians fucking lysander coldly says in this war two-thirds of the dead are civilians and that's kind of crazy that's a lot of people that's a that's a lot of people and given it's not all darrow that's that's the thing that cassius fires back is that some of that's the or sorry the first off lysander says like the sacking of cephi on luna which clearly something happened with the obsidians on luna post morningstar that we don't know about fully yep and then on top of that, also, we do know about the Ash Lord burning a city on Mars and killing all of the, the folks. Yeah. There. Um, so it, it doesn't. Where Where is that? Where it mentions um, his grandfather. It mentions his grandfather orbitally nuking a, something. Can't remember what it was. And I assume that was uh, the Ash Lord. But it's kind of interesting that he was referred to as his grandfather. Godfather, not grandfather. That's oh, it did is. it say, does it say Godfather? It does say Godfather. Yep. Interesting. Which, okay. Which makes sense to me. That makes more um, sense. You had originally called me and said God grandfather. And I'm like, well, it kind of speaks to a relationship with, you know, the Furies in general and the, the family and how close those two families were, which also speaks to like Aja's loyalty, of course, with Octavia. Mm-hmm. godfather also God. speaks to the loyalty closeness etc so well, yeah certainly yeah in pretty much the exact same ways so yep, yeah <laughs> so the ash lord is simultaneously the ash lord and the godfather <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> you come to me on the day of the burning of rhea <laughs> into my ship <laughs> And ask me for a favor? 
I'll nuke your fucking moon. Anyway. <laughs> uh, fun, fun, fun. Um, but burns new thieves. And we just find out that so many of these casualties are civilians that the bombs in the first, the very beginning of the prelude are kind of recontextualized as well a little bit where it's like there, there has been such mass mass casualty of civilians on both sides that you can also see Darrow. I mean, he gets accused of it in the, in his next chapter, but you can kind of see that writing on the wall to some degree where Darrow is definitely, uh, partaking in some violence. Well, like extreme violence. certainly I I'm curious if the uh, the deaths by nuking by the by the jackal and I guess by Lilith technically um, if those count as casualties of this war and I'm what sure percentage, the same war. what percentage that makes up uh, 10 casualties each nuke killed four or sorry not 10 casualties. Each nuke, there were there were fourteen nukes that went off. Each nuke killed four million people, estimated. Um, so so you can get your 50, 56 million. That's yeah, and we've probably we've number, probably a big chunk. We've got a number though on Darrow's soldiers dying too, though, right? Didn't it cost a million lives for the? It, it was a million a million lives for the Iron Rain. Yeah, for yeah for claiming Mercury. That which I mean, put Darrow into context. showed his math skills and proved. That 34 or 36 or whatever it was is a larger number than a million. So that's that's the intelligence of <laughs> the man that we're dealing with. The proximity of those 34 deaths being really important to him. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. He said it. He said the number felt bigger. I think that's a, a true testament to his intelligence. And uh, oh, my God, <laughs> you're fired. So to, to wrap up this chapter, uh, Lysander and Cassius run into a number of of people that are underneath hiding underneath bodies of their fellow compatriots or have been left beneath bodies to die under the weight or they're then freed and Cassius runs off with them to bring him back to the ship to save all of these folks and, and take them away to somewhere better. But they also tell a story of a gold woman and this gold woman was definitely helping trying to fight back. Uh, they had, they had not seen her. And so they were like, go, go get her and cassie was like we don't have time we're not gonna be able to do that you're a fucking moron but shut up you're 20 basically <laughs> and uh it, you know it was like no no no. we're just gonna go back to the ship fucker he lysander instead decides on his own to go back for her and kind of runs away and cassie says line damn it boy what what do you thinking what do you think you're doing lysander replies what lorne would do and to me that is just such like a gut punch back of sort of the like honor that this kid thinks that he holds like he's he is this plucky 20 something kind of like Darrow was back in Red Rising this sort of self-righteous plucky dude and yeah. I think that specifically co- quoting his grandfather or you know evoking the image of his grandfather that he barely knew is uh is interesting yeah and that's that I think that line specifically makes me think that Lysander is intended to be the focus of this book in the way that Darrow was in the previous book, Hmm. previous books in that he's, he is embodying the same type of character that Darrow was, who 
we know for a fact that Pierce Brown is really good at writing. He's really good at writing that character. I mean, he did a fantastic job writing Darrow, of course, as we're brilliantly aware. And so being kind of stuck back into, like you said, kind of like a Darrow clone to some degree. Different different traits, but, you know, has sort of that same young 20-something plucky attitude. That, yeah, the attitude. Yeah, is uh, it's good. It's refreshing. It's familiar. But there's there's definitely differences to it. And that's clearly sort of born from his upbringing and and who he is and where he comes from and that's that's not something he can shake so kind of melding the who would darrow be without being a red in disguise Mm -hmm. seems to be sort of the uh the thought experiment the writing experiment that lysander was born from yeah so Chapter nine, the passenger. This one's going to be kind of short for us um, in terms of our talk, because so much of this is just strictly well-written action. This feels like it is literally torn out of a script that could be handed to someone and be like, hey, you want to film 10, 15 minutes of an episode? Here's how you do it. And you just put it in their hands and they'd be like, fuck yeah, I could do this. I could I can imagine this perfectly. I know exactly how this is going to go yep. from all the different moments. It's it's fantastic. It's so well-written. But mm-hmm. the the woman, of course, that we talked about last time after he finds her, quickly turns on Lysander. There's all of the different sort of people that are locked up in cages and gore and kind of whatnot going on around. The woman turns on Lysander only to steal his razor. You know, it's not like <laughs> truly betraying, uh, but once the razor knows kind of the, the value and leaves Lysander with his puny little plasma pistol, leaving him kind of sad and defenseless. And also kind of like to your point about him being the, the sort of Darrow stand in. It's kind of funny because Darrow wouldn't have lost his razor. <laughs> no, that's true. That's certainly true. Uh, Darrow would never lose that. No, Darrow would have approached the situation a little bit less kind of hopeful and haphazardly, I would say. Yeah. Do you think he would have approached it at all? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think they both have that same streak of the, the sort of like Lorne do the right thing. Right. Yeah. It's just a question of their morals or ethics really and i think they align on that kind of a thing yeah sacrifice themselves to save someone else at least when they were 20 i don't know if modern darrow feels that way but yeah that's a good point (laughs) that's yeah 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 yeah. i i love as well in this section that we get so much of the description of the gear here and the weapons themselves the pulse rifle firing bolts past as long as his forearm these like long metal enough to remove like the skull of like remove the top half from like his jaw upward with a single yeah. just kind of haphazardly shot bolt from the plasma uh, pistol oh that was that was not a that was that was a plasma round that was not one of the bolts the bolt was the pulse rifle mm. but yes mm. yep yeah okay um yeah, that one that one isn't so much a bolt, but yes, the plasma rifle is really interesting because it does have kind of that close wide and it blasts that dude's fucking head off. And yeah. it is kind of funny. It makes uh it gives kind of this impression that Lysander's good with a gun randomly, which yeah. is different, you know? And also I feel like I it makes more fucking sense in the yeah. future to be uh I don't know, proficient with guns as as the biggest threat on the battlefield as opposed to razors. Like I know, I know razors have these crazy properties that make them really, really interesting in battle. But I, I still feel like it's tough to tough to bring a knife to a gunfight, man. 
it definitely is tough to bring a knife to the gunfight. I have I have no qualms with that. I feel like the the comment that we always make, right, is that pulse armor does a really good job of rejecting a lot of these things. Yeah. And kind of bouncing that off. And that's why they're so afraid initially when they come on the ship and they mention that they don't have the pulse armor that they and that they left it back there because they didn't expect to need it. Because it was a you know, it was a distress signal and there was no real sign of crazy violence. It's it's definitely yeah, it's interesting. Fair. But I agree with you, and I think that that's something again. I think that Pierce Brown has literally learned so much every book that he's written and has grown this universe in a real way. And the Lysander chapters here do a really good job of fleshing out a way that the series can be different and still maintain its violence and its tone. Yeah, certainly. And then uh, after, of course, at the end here, they do make it off the ship uh, after a number of violent exchanges that happen with some of the Ascomani to find lysander with the passed out girl who's just stimmed to all fuck (laughs) three stim shots like that was that was nuts like more more just like begging for it that was that was weird but you know kind of funny Mm -hmm. and lysander peels away the red slash and does find a peerless scarred peerless scar on this woman's face and she isn't who she claims yeah she's uh she's hiding some shit yeah i mean lysander and cassius are also hiding some shit but are they? Yeah, they're hiding their identities. He he calls himself something entirely different. Oh, he does. He does call himself. Lysander does. Else. Yeah. And I had that. I had that name somewhere. But it's uh, it's interesting. But he's obviously not calling himself Alun because you know that's yeah, a dead giveaway. But he's not like physically hiding himself. He's not. He's not wearing a disguise or anything like that. Oh no. He yeah. He's not hiding himself that way. But. Cassius is because Cassius is the most recognizable face in the solar system as as was said I think yeah. by Lysander the second most recognizable face something like that yeah that's probably pretty true so Cassius is hiding his face Lysander is not but Lysander has grown for a decade so yeah kind of makes sense yeah anything else sense. anything else in chapter nine I mean who, who do you think that is I guess is maybe a worthy question oh do you have a guess mm, so it's it's somebody under 20 so okay. it's not I don't think it's anybody that we know specifically. Sure. But I bet it's somebody it's the daughter of somebody that we know. And and she says help she says help at asteroid S1988 and she's not clear about we need to go help them or there is help for us there. Good call. That's that's a really good call. Anything else on chapter 9? Anything else you want to talk about? Uh n- no, that should be good. So next up, we've got chapter 10, which is from Darrow's perspective, Liberty Eternal. But before we jump into that chapter, I just have to mention here, I opened a second of the Zeph beers here, one that PJ and I actually don't have identical copies of, and it's the Bacon and Eggs Pizza Port Brewing Company Imperial Coffee Porter, and this is fucking delicious. This is distinctly my shit. This is like a 9, 9.5 out of 10. I took a sip of this and I literally like off air when we were taking our little break here, I like squealed in joy and was like, I'm going to talk about this on the, I have to, I have to, this is delicious. Usually when we take breaks, we just kind of, we take them at, at the chapter markers once in a while, but we just kind of jump right in to introducing that chapter and try to seamlessly do it. And Crossland just stepped on stepped on that one he's like nope i'm talking about this right as we (laughs) yeah i stepped on the secret sauce of the show a little bit but that's okay for this single revelation of glorious glorious beer yep wow 
So. Wow, I'm not even done with the instant institutionality sale. Like, I'm still not done with it if the sun doesn't rise. But I opened it because I was like, I kind of want to try it. I want to, I want to, you know, at the very least, get a get a sense because I've got a nice cooler here that'll keep it nice and cold. But I am loving that beer. Holy shit! Okay, uh, moving on to the uh, the chapter ten, Liberty Eternal. What do you make of uh, Publius Ku Caraval? It was he was an interesting character. He was kind of a fun. He's character still alive. To we talking about oh. it like he's dead already. Okay. <laughs> he is an interesting character and I'm excited okay. to see where his, uh, his arc goes because it, it, he seems to be set up as almost the, uh, I don't want to call him a straight man, but he's kind of the, I don't know if it's right to, to compare him to Varys in Game of Thrones. Sure. Which I, I think Varys sees himself as the man of the people who doesn't have ulterior motives, but I don't know if that's actually true. This seems like the kind of guy who's actually in it for the right reasons and even has the nickname the incorruptible because of his like his traits, his nature. He doesn't seem to care so much about his own internal desires or his internal desire is a fair society. One of the two. Yeah. That's that's a really good point. I think that Publius, for exactly the reasons you said, he kind of comes off as this like honorific guy. I kind of imagine him like the political version of Hercules from the movie, <laughs> you know, kind of like he can't do any wrong and he, he has like this really valid place. But especially given his two speeches that happen around Darrow inside of these chapters, the first being very much like we're on the side of of Darrow and we we cheer we we coppers we cheer him on for all that he's doing and all of the good and the conquering and the savings and yes all of all of the people that died fuck them initially is kind of his his sort of take but he's also kind of he's swayed by the speech when he internalizes it and he thinks about what what dancer's saying and he comes out on the other side and he and he's like ah yes while uh, we do have mercury now it is a little fucked. And we did. Yep. What Dancer said is correct and fucked. So maybe you shouldn't be in charge. Yeah. I mean, so it's a fair point. And I think that that just kind of speaks to the, the sort of character, which is also something that I feel like Hercules would do is he'd sit in the middle and he'd listen and he'd be like, OK, do I listen to the Danny DeVito goat man or <laughs> or do I listen to Meg, the human woman that I'm attracted to? It's always mm. Danny DeVito. It's the Danny DeVito goat man. No, uh, but, but just Danny DeVito in general. If he's involved in a single character, like he is infallible and exactly what I'm going to listen to. So anyway, moving on. It's such a minor thing here, but Mustang removing the cushions from the morning throne is actually such a big deal. Yeah, it, it shows. I, I don't think it's a minor thing at all. I think it's I think it's a very intentionally it's a very intentional statement. Without a doubt, I just think that it's also it's a very intentional statement. It matches Mustang's kind of personality. I think the bits that that I'm talking about specifically is it's so easy to gloss over in terms of the oh, the, yeah. the page as a whole. It's it's a minor detail that takes up two lines. I think it like it very much paints a picture of her position, her thought on the position and sort of her setting the standard for sovereigns to come being in, in kind of the metaphorical uncomfortable position that she is constantly in or put in and sort of the difficulty therein. Yeah. It's great. I, I mean, it, it also ensures that she's always in a, a mindset of discomfort when she's making judgments and when she's making decisions, she's, she's not, she's not 
in a literally cushy place for herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not leaning back comfortably into the chair, you know, leaning away and like listening to only the people she wants to listen to or paying attention when she needs to. She's constantly at attention, uncomfortable, prodded by where she's sitting, which which makes for good decision making, I think, in the position that she's in. If not good, good decision making, at the very least, good outside positioning. She is not taking the role lightly. Right. Yep. Good optics, too. What's what's the current meme? The current meme is uh, they know the part she she. Oh, she knows the assignment. It's it's they know the assignment is the the current meme with the kids uh, in terms of like actors and acting. Yeah, right. Uh, Here I am. But basically pointing to people and being like this person got the assignment when they were playing that role when like someone just did a good job acting it's silly so many memes are just i can't even imagine what that meme would be like i i can't visualize it okay can't so imagine. imagine a picture of michael b jordan right okay. and then you might have a collage of four different roles he's been in and what the meme says is michael b jordan gets the assignment and that's all the meme says but then you've got the four different images that show him in four different roles that he did really well in so it's like, okay, he's a good actor in those moments, or he's a good character. That's fucking dumb. I don't, I don't like it's it. It's a stupid meme, um, but I it's a like meme it. nonetheless. <laughs> I, I won't stand for it. Um, I hereby condemn that meme. Uh, not having ever seen it. Um, <laughs> I think, I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna make a Mustang gets it gets the assignment meme and have it just be a chair with it that's like really uncomfortable to sit in. <laughs> uh anyway so i i think it's really cool that there's also this whole mural on the top of the ceiling and it it depicts the the critical moment in the rising uh which was of course darrow's speech on phobos in which everyone rose up and kind of made that sort of change the momentum um but i cannot help but mention justice for phobos the tiny moon oh tiny moon teeny tiny moon Teeny tiny moon. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I mentioned the mural only as a vehicle to uh, insert my own joke on Phobos being a mm. tiny fucking moon. It's so small. It's so small it's that so, it shouldn't be considered a moon. It's it's so small. It's it like right at the threshold, asteroid. right at the threshold of what can be considered a planetary e- body. Even like Ganymede is fairly small. Like it's bigger than our moon, which is way bigger than Phobos. But it's not... It's, it's not that big. It's like three quarters of Earth size. Darrow, though, post that gives an impassioned presentation that we expect from Darrow, uh, lauded by 50% of the room, thunderously applauding his actions of liberation and glory on Mercury, like you would expect. <laughs> it's, it's very... I've come to not trust the applause of, of the room. They, they seem to really just care about how impassioned you are. It's so funny because I think that it speaks to the the line, the mob is fickle. And the mob is very fickle here, even in the Senate. Yeah. yeah. Even in the Senate. Ugh. You want to you say that they're making the, the correct moral choice by stripping Darrow, potentially. And I... To some degree, I think I agree with it. As much as I love Darrow as a character, it does feel like he definitely overstepped. And um, oh God, he he killed a million of of their own people. Yeah, I mean to claim a planet with billions on it, but and, and liberating billions. So after what's, ignoring what's a, a ceasefire a claim, yeah, yeah, that's that's where <laughs> shit gets really dicey. 
but but before we get there, I I just want to I want to talk about kind of how interesting it is that these speeches have gone from being so important to us as an audience to now for Darrow, they're no longer the same sort of motivational points as much as they are theater for everyone else. They're very much a dramatization to get people impassioned. And he's even pointing it out with the blank lenses of the cameras that he's pointing to and and just kind of pointing to. He's gesturing and signaling for something to happen with Daxo standing up to lead the applause and everyone else as they had discussed the night before or the day before the dinner. And all of it is just so rehearsed that it's almost like Darrow's losing his shine or potentially has like a strange he's not he's not power hungry. But he's kind of manipulative. Oh, definitely. He He's not necessarily power hungry, but he definitely has an ego that makes him try to prove that he's right all the time. Yeah, at the very least to enable himself. Right, but he, he has to prove that he's right and do so in a spectacularly public way. Grandiose fashion. Yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. Because he's always seeking to win the hearts of the people. It it reminds me of um, the Peruvian dictator married to Ava. Why can't I remember his name? Peron? I, th- I feel like it's Peron. The name of the dude. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Do, 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 do. I'm sure you've heard that at yeah. some point in your life. Uh, I didn't. Uh, uh, Juan hmm. Domingo Peron is who I was thinking of. But it, very much sort of the the will of the people and and kind of has this sort of attitude of power and actually in these moments i would directly compare mustang and darrow to ava and domingo they have it is it is both theater to them as well as it is them believing that they are the only ones who understand well not so much mustang but more darrow being the only one who thinks that he understands exactly what needs to be done to make this happen to make the the war end yeah we've talked about it darrow's really not a tactician right like he he flexes those muscles every once in a while but he seems to have leaned into it more now yes and seems seems to have an ego about him as far as how great of a tactician he is to know that he can win this war and it, it just seems so reckless it's it's so tough it is so tough because there's a part of me that agrees with darrow's position on a lot of these things entirely and i i i do too but the fact that he won only makes this a more difficult conversation but it doesn't change the laws that he broke and the i guess not necessarily laws but the direct orders that he disregarded like yes he won they they the the iron rain worked but he didn't have an approval to sacrifice a million fucking lives to take a planet. <sighs> yeah, I, I can't I can't think I can't imagine a way to argue that he was in the right for making the Mercury decision. Yeah, I, I feel like I can very easily make an argument, which I OK, so that's interesting. I feel without, like I without can very... hindsight, without hindsight, without knowing that he won. Oh, I still think he made the right decision. Even even without hindsight, without the hindsight, the reason that I say that is because I believe that his judgment call on these people showing up to his ship and him turning them away for the ceasefire, he's only been betrayed by these people. I, I agree with you on that, but the direct the, they voted on whether or not they should take Mercury and they voted no. 
this this is this is what he fought for this new system of government is what he fought for and what they were trying to instill from the beginning and he is completely disregarding it true true yeah no that that is also a very good point within and it's the point that dancer's making yes which is that you fought for this thing and maybe now you just need to let it exist What's really interesting is if you look at this, we're, we're so jumping ahead. These these two chapters kind of blend together a little they bit. Do. So it's, I, I think it's, it's only chapter. fair to it's, it's only to, fair to it, yeah. talk about kind of the whole thing. But ultimately, what Darrow isn't seeing inside of what's happening, he isn't seeing that he's actually being given an opportunity to spend time with his family. Like what he didn't do is he didn't go, oh, I no longer have the burden of leadership. I no longer have to take care of the war. Instead, he freaked out and reacted and was like, we have to do something so that I can still ensure victory. He while, has while simultaneously complaining down. about not having enough time with his kid. Yeah, right. He's putting it's himself so, in that position. He, he literally cannot see. He cannot see that he is in his own way here. Yeah. Which is also good because you don't want a protagonist to be totally so aware and not problematic and have no problems. But like also it's so interesting to me because he totally could have fixed at the very least his family issue. And the thing that like literally the fantasy that we addressed last week, he could have that fantasy. He is given permission to have that fantasy. He's also being tried for war crimes, but he's given permission to have that fantasy. (laughs) Ah. Man, yep, it's 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 tough. So I I think we'll we'll just move into kind of the next part of the conversation here. Publius's speech about the invisible levels of the ancient evil really hits the thematic core of these this entire series on its head, which is that this is obviously an allegory for classism, slavery, and and things of that, and sort of what the systems impart on the people that are involved in the processes who aren't direct slaves and that's specifically what kind of they're getting to with with publius in particular and kind of his character and reflecting and all of the other people that are parts of the system but they don't realize exactly what they're supporting there's um there's a a sociological theory floating around that i cannot recall the name of and i did my best to research i've totally read about it before but basically saying something along the lines of as a group we have trouble identifying when we're on the wrong side of something because so many of us agree so like groupthink just locks confirmation bias it's it's not it's not confirmation bias because it has more to do with ethics and morality so okay basically you don't realize this is the example that i know is provided within the ethical sampling that i'm talking about but you don't realize that you are a nazi until the war crimes are presented to you and you're like oh shit i'm a nazi and even then you have a hard time distinguishing the factors you have a hard time breaking that which is where i i landed on it's like a twisted kantianism it's it kant kant of course being a, a big father inside of philosophy moral relativism wherein acting morally right with a case of duty is what pushed pushes you forward that's kind of his whole thing so basically what i'm saying is your perception of good is warped and so that's where i'm i'm pulling kant into the equation but so okay that that's a that's a good call you it 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 can be tough to realize that you're a part of a system that is oppressing other people and coming to that fact and that's what's so fascinating to me about publius's little monologue that he has here is he basically comes out and says you know we were trapped i was trapped i was knowingly working for very evil people because i had accepted the morality of those evil people Mm -hmm. and 
that is so interesting from a yeah. from a concept level and i think it really nails that that one paragraph nails sort of the moral and ethical dilemma that is rampant throughout the series um if at the if it worse just kind of the backdrop or the setting of the entire series you just pulled it to the forefront in that one speech yeah 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 so oh good. it's 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 a cool dynamic it's a cool dynamic to explore in fiction like this isn't with, it wild like political fiction like this is super cool isn't it isn't it I, I i actually i have a really this this book is not as well liked as some of the other books inside of the series but especially in this slow breakdown that we're doing i am coming to love this book because it is so granular and it's yeah. deep and it's it's real and it it is so different than Morningstar, which or 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 even Red Rising. Golden Sun is on its own little pedestal in the distance. But I Iron Gold is is something fucking else. It, he created inside of the scene, he created an action scene that is all dialogue. Yeah. It's all dialogue. <laughs> it's I, just it's so good. I'm like what, a hundred hundred and seven pages in, something like that. Yeah. Whatever it is. I think it's one oh seven. This book feels simultaneously dense and uh, just easy to skim. I, I I have this strange outlook on these book series because of the way I, that I have read them from the beginning in that it's been for this show and it's been granular, like you mentioned, and really tackling and digging into small sections over the course of a week. This book is more dense than any of the others, but at the same time, I could read through it and pick up 10% of it and feel like I've read the entire book, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I, at the very least, you get all the moral themes. There's so much that could be missed that don't necessarily, the the main driving plot of the book doesn't seem to hinge on them, but it's just a vast network of interconnected like lines of of depth that are there if you're if you're paying enough attention to him he weaves it like a fucking genius in this novel that's that's all that i i want to say is like even just we're we're only 100 pages in but boy am i still so psyched for Mm. what's to come and i'm very excited i i hope that you're you're along for for this ride but you loving this political intrigue stuff is so good to me because there there is this kind of danger between some people like really don't like lyria and I think that's partially because of the audiobook narrator. And some people also really don't Guilty. like the kind of slow nature of the political intrigue stuff. But fuck, it's so good. I was not. I, I think I talked about it. I was not super, super pumped about jumping into this book like I was with Morningstar because I wasn't left on a cliffhanger with with Morningstar when that ended. So it, it yeah. felt well wrapped up and it makes sense that it's considered a new trilogy. I think that it's. A mistake to call it a new trilogy because people will approach this as if it's the first book and they need the first trilogy i'm convinced but i think this might become my, my favorite book in the series hmm. okay so that's, far i'm i'm really exciting. really enjoying the way that this specifically the darrow sections are so interesting to me with this political intrigue stuff 
it's a it's a very different shift on Darrow's perspective. So wild. Mm-hmm. So glad we get to talk about this. So we've we've talked a little bit about Dancer, but I think the number one point of talk here is that Dancer is just a fucking asshole to Darrow, throwing Persephone's song slash Eo of Lycos, of course, both in his face. Darrow reacts with rage in the moment. But this all of these speeches that Dancer gives just strictly gives me Palpatine prequel vibes. It just feels like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can't help but think of it as exactly that. He's just turning. He's facing. He's like, but you know, you folks about all of the evil that Darrow has wrought and all of the dreams that we were led to believe the rising would bring and all of the violence that could end. It just it feels like it could have dripped out of Palpatine's mouth. Yeah. Yep. He. Oh, (laughs) I don't know what to say there. I'm with how, you. how do you feel about dancer kind of making these these changes these decisions oh it's so interesting oh man i love it i love it i i fucking hate him but i love it <laughs> it's so interesting because dancer was such like a positive character and positive remark in the original trilogy but here dude's just gnarly but i mean also like it, he seems so soft-spoken and so caring and loving and he, he seems innocent almost in the first trilogy but remember he's also like one of the main leaders of a rebellion group Mm -hmm. planning to topple a galactic society like there's some there's some cunning there that Mm -hmm. he'd have to possess so seeing that come out is really cool Uh, the the question that i want you to ponder here is whether or not you think darrow made the right call to not tell the governing body about the peace treaty well how, how do you feel about that we talked about it a little bit earlier but if you were to give a definitive line in the stand statement what would you say i think it is entirely the wrong decision by darrow to okay keep that secret because it can only use be used against him if it ever comes to light that it was that it <laughs> that it was offered it only it comes does. it does clearly it does now but if if it ever comes to light his credibility is gone. His decision making, like, is in question. His loyalty is in question. His like, everything mm. about Darrow and his position is in question. I think he should have some autonomy and some some freedom to make choices and make judgment calls when when at war. But I don't think it should be kept from the the rest of the council totally fair it's it's so it's so it's so hard to think about a lot of these things because i think that darrow made a good decision in regards to what he read the peace offering as which is really just piecemeal attempt to recover before a an additional attack or onslaught because the goals have just proven to do that over time but i i think the component that he fucked up is not telling anyone else, including Mustang, his wife, the sovereign. Yeah. yeah. Which is just such you a think clear. She no, she, she's dumbfounded in this moment. She, which she is, acts on dumbfounded. I, I don't, I think, I, I think, think that she had, I think it idea. would have, I think it would have stated yeah. from Darrow's point, Darrow's perspective, it would have stated that she was acting or feigning something. Yeah. I, I think she's absolutely no clue in these moments whatsoever. It's just, I'm, it's. I'm more curious what that sort of relationship is like as far as what they share with each mm-hmm. other in private. 
I feel like they share a lot, but it, this feels like one of those things. He hasn't been home for more than three days. He hasn't been able to like really communicate because he was obviously on the campaign on Mercury for uh, roughly at least six months, based on our knowledge from the prologue to the the first words of the the book. So mm-hmm. we we just kind of have an understanding of like that time gap. So I I doubt that he was communicating that actively with with Mustang outside of like letters home, right? Kind of a thing. So yeah, I. I have a tough time. What's really interesting, too, to consider is that in this ties in the time that it takes for a message to send across the solar system is a long time. It oh, yeah. you can't make you can't make good battle judgment calls relying on people from Earth, effectively Luna, all the way to Mercury. It would take days it would take almost i i can't remember i read somewhere that like the estimated time message time for like here to mars on average is like over 48 hours so you can't respond no, that no, 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 quickly no. here to mars it's like 14 minutes it, it, catch and response though like so catch and then respond with with the time dilation of the way that the planet moves There's, i think it was 48 hours no it, it's 14 uh, minutes okay it's it, 14 it's not minutes 14 minutes between here and Mars. Why, where am I catching this from? It, it was from it was from the expanse. I know that this is from the expanse. I know that this is where I'm getting it from. Maybe I'm thinking about a rim planet instead, which probably makes more sense. But there was a the, the expanse is so ground there. It's a hard sci fi series. So it's very grounded in physical reality. So and I, they there was definitely a plot point that rotated around the time dilation on messages. Which that in that, Taliban's war. Mm, that doesn't make sense to me. Unless you're unless you're dealing with like a galactic scale or a universal scale. It is well it's it's solar system scale. Yeah that doesn't plus then time dilation doesn't really come into play. Time dilation is the wrong term for sure. Okay. Okay. I'm just bullshitting. So okay. stuff. Um, I, I could see it being like a series of relays that they have to go through in order to send the message that are it's not a linear path. Like it has to go from here to in a, in a very roundabout swirling kind of way in order to be able to access the next relay point uh-huh. get to where they're going. I could I could see that being a slower process. I think that's a part of it don't I, I don't fully recall again it takes a lot of time to get a message from point a to point b it's not instantaneous communication there like even if you were on a video with someone there is momentary lag to the point of it just being in cape in, impossible to have um video from like luna to mars with our technology as it stands right because it would take 14 minutes like you said for an update to hit anyway yeah you couldn't have point a phone being, call correct yeah because you'd just be talking over each other mm-hmm the, the call and response is too long. Anyway, point being, you don't have a really good read and it takes a long time for that data to travel over the distance. So it's not it's not great. Right. You have to make a decision without being able to pull on someone else split second to make a decision, because even if we take the 14 minute estimate, you're talking about a half hour almost of time to make a judgment call that should be split second or that might right. need to be split second. Yeah. This is this is one of the strange moments where I agree with the idea of a military tribunal judge system because they would have an understanding of the sort of constraints that Darrow might be put through. But a regular judicial system doesn't fit this well. And this is where all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, maybe it does make sense to view war a little bit differently. 
Yeah. Yeah, war is... And I, I, don't, I don't like saying that. I don't like admitting that. <laughs> At yep. all. Yep, yep. That's a tough one. So I think a, another thing to really pay attention to and take note of in this whole exchange, in this... I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far to call it a coup, but definitely a... What would you call it? What would you call this? A coup, kind uh, of the the discrediting of Darrow. Yeah, discrediting, dethroning, kind of. Yeah, you know, even though he's not technically in a position of Co- yeah hypothetical power, at least compared to everyone else in the room. But the fact that Mustang's kind of stuck. She's kind of stuck in a box here. She can't really defend Darrow or condemn Dancer without everybody noticing the hypocrisy and the favoritism that she has for or perceptively nobody nobody would be able to not see favoritism in that moment towards darrow regardless of if it's okay. what she actually believes or what she actually thinks it would be perceived as unfair favoritism so she's kind of bound in that moment yeah i i think without a doubt she's got a weird she she has I feel like we talked a little bit about, about this last week on um, talking about kind of Mustang and Darrow's relationship. You had made mention of the sort of struggle to believe that they would remain a couple or that it made sense. And this actually feeds directly into it not making sense by your argument. I don't I don't agree with that on my own terms. And we, we talked about that at length, uh, but this this directly feeds into that idea where because of Darrow's nature, he blindsides people all the fucking time. Yeah. And this is another blindside that sort of the the human nature to not realize that this is a constant thing that Darrow is probably going to be doing is just it, it just repeats itself. It's it's a cycle. It's endless. Mm-hmm. Darrow lies and blindsides people. Yeah, and he justifies as much as I love our our protagonist. He's a fucking liar. (laughs) But there is there is a lot of justification that goes into that lying and it it hurts him more often than than not. But he feels that these lies are justified and right in the moment because he feels like more harm than good would come from being truthful, which it's hard to argue with him in those in, in a lot of those cases. It's just the fact that it's fucking all the time. Yeah, he's a he's a bit of a nightmare in my head. <laughs> um, and it's it's only made even more clear, like all of his traits have just become so much more exasperated over the last 10 years. And it's it's so painfully clear here that that is that is the case. Great call right. on Mustang. Yeah. So what do you what do you make of Dancer's move and in turn Publius's decision to strip Darrow of his title and associatedly his power i mean i i felt like it was kind of a mistake for darrow to have any sort of title in this republic to begin with i felt like he should have been more of a symbolic leader and leading from afar and leading through mustang being a personal advisor to her because there's that conflict like there's that conflict of interest between her and him like they they need a separation or their credibility both go out the window, which is kind of what's happening here. So yeah, I, I, I think having Darrow be a strictly symbolic leader and a strictly private counselor to Mustang would have been the right way to go from the beginning. 
And I think that's the the position he should take on going forward. So I, I would have done the same thing in their shoes. It's it's so interesting because I think that Darrow should be the first man to Mustang's president. You know, I really think that I agree with you. But also the trouble is, is that he's been a he's basically been a general for so long that how do you strip him of that? And I think it has to be a choice generally. Like people have to choose. He's constantly to... complaining about not having enough time with his kid. He's putting it on yes. himself. Yep. Yep. You have to choose and admit to relinquish that power. And I think part of Darrow is a little bit like I, I made I made mention earlier that Darrow's in power hungry, but he does. He doesn't desire power, but he he's earned position positions, maybe the better term. He's earned position and isn't willing to relinquish that position because he feels a responsibility like his position is based on responsibility yeah. of him being the red who turned gold. But um, is it? <laughs> His he seems like somebody who keeps moving the goalposts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like definitely. <laughs> what There's is no? What question. is the goal here? And that's and that's what Dancer brings up, right? He's like, okay, so when we when we eliminate the core, what's going to happen with the rim? And Darrow's like, we have a peace treaty, and Dancer's like, we have a peace treaty for now. Like, do you believe that that's going to stay forever? No, there's probably going to be a moral problem or you're going to decide that something's wrong and you're going to unilaterally decide to fucking do something because that's what you fucking do. You've proved that you will unilaterally make decisions without consulting literally anyone else. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. I mean, thankfully, you know, we've we've got this crowd of people. We've mostly been talking about Mustang Dancer, Publius, but Severo's on his side. Severo like sees sees Darrow getting attacked and is is defensive at the very least in a personal way for him. Even Wolfgar, um, who's one of the only armed people inside of the room, walking him out of the room when when he's stripped of his title, he's still very pro Darrow. He's he's not he's not against these folks, although it it is innately pitched kind of that way. He himself doesn't feel opposed to darrow but he's he's ultimately kind of the um like execution arm of the senate like he's he's the what the fuck are they called in trials what what are the what are the folks called in trials that are responsible for the criminals marshal is it is it a marshal i mean marshals or bailiffs kind of i think bailiff is the term that i'm looking for bailiff yeah he, he is kind of the bailiff here he's the intermediary that bridges the gap but ultimately, he's still on he's still like mentally on Darrow and Severo's side. He's not against them. He just has to kind of do his job. And, yeah. and to me, that's just kind of unfortunate. Severo yeah, reads yeah, it as aggressive. You know, well, like Severo I mean, reads, Severo it reads everything as aggressive and bad. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, Darrow walks out of the room, of course, with a renewed cause in absolutely infernal anger. He is just on fucking fire. And as we mentioned before, Darrow chill the fuck out dude you can spend time with your kid uh the man says all i know is war and he is right in my heart i know my enemy i know his metal i know his cruelty and i know this war will not end with the politicians smiling at each other across the table it will only end as it began with blood and you know i mean the the shitty part about all of this is that both sides are totally correct and i hate saying that you hate saying both sides are correct but Darrow's not wrong about the enemy here. It's not it's not going to be over in a generation. The golds will come again and blah, blah, blah. They'll try yeah. again. They'll repress an entire generation underneath them. It'll be a whole problem from the society. But also, Dancer's right that Darrow totally overstepped. Totally overstepped. 
Completely. And I, I think it's hard to argue otherwise. I think it's impossible to argue otherwise. Like, it, it, strictly, yes, he did. He overstepped. My question is, is why didn't, with this plan to um, remove Darrow from his position, why didn't they like immediately appoint someone else? That feels like the most logical thing to have like a successor in line to talk about here. Um, I would guess and that's the one that's the next conversation. Sure. Because I, I okay. bet it's it's probably not necessarily everybody, but a lot of I, w- I would bet every color or every every faction or every group or however they have it uh, separated within the uh, within the Republic. I bet they all have an opportunity to put forward a candidate. Hmm. OK, or you would it, think that it might be someone who's already military at this point, And so I would say you're right so they could be military and then the color would put forward the best of their color the only two people we've really gotten military wise that aren't golds are harnassus and orion harnassus has only been mentioned a couple of times in iron gold so far but Mm -hmm. so this chapter ends with a with a quick note where darrow and severo are of course chatting back and forth and severo summons the howlers for whatever's going to happen next and pj my question to you here is what's going to happen next <sighs> where, where where the fuck do you think you go why did dara lean into the howlers as the people as opposed to the fucking armies uh because i think darrow has to leave okay i think he has to leave strictly to not deal with any sort of um extra judicial conversations that might end violently <laughs> yeah <laughs> it just like it's that was a perfect way of putting it, it was so like <laughs> it was so nice around the touchy nature of what is potentially going to happen yep yep there's Good gonna work. be some uh some problems i think yep. and i think he needs to get out of there and i i sure. think i think he's probably too prideful to uh admit that he's fleeing so i think there's probably going to be a sudden emergency that he needs to take care of on a different planet (laughs) (laughs) fair 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 point it it's it's very interesting and i like that perspective so that's good Mm -hmm. all right let's move into our final chapter of the week chapter 12 from lyria's perspective sling blades and boy oh boy what a what a chapter title that is that's pretty pretty fucking cool chapter title i'm not gonna lie it's it's metal this entire chapter is very hardcore um and i know like man i a lot of people give give lyria guff um and say you know blah 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 she's annoying whiny but i think lyria really just has a really hard time at life more than anything else <laughs> like her life is brutal <laughs> she yeah, truly is tough. like it's pretty tough i mean fine if if people don't like her if you don't like her whatever that's okay but also how can you like not acknowledge sort of the, the the shitty set of circumstances that she has rolled through in the beginning of these books. Like we were introduced to her and immediately her brother was killed. <laughs> like almost immediately. I mean, that's like another, uh, another character we know from the previous book. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. <laughs> Relating directly to this story. Weird, weird how trauma seems to also be a theme. <laughs> um, weird how the know, death of brothers has a big theme. It's, it's got a strange ring to it. Uh, 
this this chapter starts off very quickly, of course, after the death of Tyrion. She's running home. She runs into her sister, has this conversation about we need to get the kids out. We need to get everyone out and explains that Tyrion is dead. Of course, very unfortunate for uh, for the poor man of the house. Um, but he is no longer the man of the house, more of the headless body of the house. But everyone gets very encouraged by this kind of general idea and wants to leave. Lyria goes to her father, though, and he finally kind of turns and acknowledges her and says the first word that he said in however long, outside of his communication of grunts, we assume, saying no to her. And the no is kind of all-encompassing. It's freeing for Lyria in a number of ways. It's it's the immediate loss of not needing to take care of him right now in sort of the life or death, death situation. But it's also kind of progress. It's, it's a progression for Lyria where now... She can drop this kind of dead weight from her life and like her shoulders just get 10 pounds lighter. Yeah. Yeah. She is. Uh, it, she's. But <sighs> hmm. there's so much emotion there that that doesn't necessarily come through that well, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that feeling is there. And I, I, I think there was this burden that her father had on her, like that, that she felt from just his existence in the last couple of years. That in in the tragic sense that the only reason he can't come along with them is that the person that would have carried him is dead is tragic on top of tragic. Like it, there, there's no good way to put that. But it, at, at the same time, it gives her so much more clarity on what she can do for every other member of the family. Yeah. Which I guess is is probably the most important part here. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It, it, it gives... The immediate relief, of course, where it's like, okay, now I can take care of the other the other nephews and nieces. It's tough because there's an obvious like pain to letting go her father, but also there's this lightness. And you can also feel kind of the the rush of the other like the the nieces and nephews con, I think, in particular running to pa or grandpa and trying to like give him like a last goodbye and a hug and sort of the emotional wherewithal of letting someone go like that and you also kind of get this like weird generational thing i have a an incredibly emotional relationship with this part because i had a very different separation from one of my grandfathers that passed away that that matched kind of a lot of this emotional timbre and my my siblings barely remember it but they reacted emotionally in the moment in the same kind of way i was just old enough to remember it and i i was i was there mentally and they weren't and so i remember kind of the same sort of pleading and it feels it felt similar not in the way that like lyria has this emotional distance from her father cuz her grandfather cuz he's a piece of shit her father because he's a piece of shit but it just i don't know it, it resonates with me every time when i read it and it just it it, it hits a particular note i think she she kind of leans into her disdain for his Habits. his his disposition i guess yeah pretty heavily like she she is yeah. not happy about her her father's state but i think that's just kind of how she's dealing with it in the moment and having that really kind of come to a head and and be a no i'm not going with you as much as the only words i've said in the last several years i can't imagine what emotions are actually washing over her in this moment more even even more shockingly can you think about the emotions that are washing over him in this moment honestly, I, I think that that's honestly i i took it as that he was truly in like a semi-vegetative state 
not not necessarily completely mentally vegetative, but emotionally. And it seemed like he was this is a very strongly emotionally charged decision that has to be made. And I'm going to make the most logical one in that if I go with you, all of you will die. So I'm just going to say no and uh, let you guys go without me. That's kind of the that's kind of the way I understood his decision making. I don't know if that's the right read on it. No, I, I can weigh that appropriately, and I think that I agree with that. I think that the um, the sort of emotionally stunted kind of point of view makes a lot of sense. I was just curious as to what you thought was running through his mind on, on the character side of things. But yeah, good call. There's, there's of course, very little time here. Uh, Lyria makes a run to the hospital to get Lyria, Liam while Ava gets her children together to make a run for it. They're going to all meet up at a boat that they can take away to to escape here. They agree to meet at the watchtower first, though. That's going to be their kind of union spot, and then they're going to head forward from there. After getting Liam from the hospital, Lyria hurries back, evading the red hand, getting called to Gamma, having another people number of people chase her, people shouting and kind of trying to redirect the fire towards her. But the red hand is just fucking cleaving through this camp like a sushi knife through paper. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, they are cutting through. It's a clean cut. And I the the biggest thing that I'm curious about right now is the whole game thing, because clearly not clearly, but I think we're kind of led to believe that there is this discrimination against Gamma because Darrow kind of hated Gamma. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's something a little bit more sinister. Uh, mm, sinister is probably the wrong word. But more like what we were facing with uh, Alia and what mm-hmm. what was kind of alluded to a few times in that there are certain sects of low colors that are kind of intentionally treated differently than the rest of the of the groups. And Gamma was clearly one of those being the automatic winners of the laurel every <laughs> every time. So I'm I'm curious what the actual collusion and what the the historical reason for this outburst is. Uh, to to me, it, it doesn't read quite that immediate. I feel like the the reason for the collusion is more just the sort of as you mentioned, it was it's more in lines with the Alia bit where these are the people that were chosen, these are the chosen slaves, more than anything else to me and harmony knows that is directing the red hand as such to extract that same revenge because they're obviously like-minded thinkers mm-hmm. so harmony is the red hand um <laughs> i didn't i didn't connect a dot there did i i don't uh, feel like I connected no no a dot. It, it, it hasn't been explicitly stated but we know right from right the, we 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 it was implied but I, from the uh, yeah from the first chunk with the, I, with the scarred leaning, like burned face lady i'm still leaning on the implication but obviously it's harmony that's there in that scene as we discussed previously yeah like, i'm leaning on the implication that she's leading the thing but right. not but, but not like it's pointing. a different name than the thing that she led before correct correct she led the red legion before she read the the red yeah the red legion red legion yeah yeah fair enough okay 
So the sling blade moment where the for the forest is baring its teeth to me on this read was so visceral. I, I could just imagine those like curved blades like poking out of the trees up and down and just like shining against the, the subtle moonlight and, and just consuming the folks that were evading the camp, cutting them all down in this kind of brutal, brutal killing field. Mm-hmm. Just. Fuck, for whatever reason, I like I kind of feel like I neglected this chapter in, in my first couple of read throughs. And this time in particular, there's just so much visceral personal pain and feelings. And then you get oh, this yeah. meta moment that just harkens back, especially considering the sling blade has been the symbol of rebellion, the symbol of virtue, of valiance, of of trying to do the right thing. And then to see the literal embodiment of that wielded as a cudgel a blunt instrument by the red hand to extract vengeance in a different way is just so fucking awful yeah certainly Ugh. yeah it's pretty it's pretty brutal god it, it, that that cuts me deep it, you know in terms of the the sort of symbology of course it's just it's fuck so to end the chapter and, and the week kind of discussion leary and liam are doing okay they're hiding still panicking but more in control uh leary keeps liam calm with chocolate of course as she saved his chocolate from earlier like we talked about last week but then she smells fire and that's it that's where we end the week yep that's hmm, chocolate chocolate's all we get to think about for the rest of the week we started the chapter with chocolate (laughs) Chocolate and and we ended we we started the chapter with the chocolate drink and we ended the chapter with chocolate chocolate's new theme for the series um all i'm saying is chocolate (laughs) all i'm saying is chocolate chocolate (laughs) made by cooks made by cooks so that's where we end for the week but this week we are actually bringing back pj's predictions we talked about a couple through the show but we'll reiterate the few that we've talked about so uh pj what moves is darrow making next uh fleeing i think he's fleeing with the howlers I think it'll be masked as like a military movement that I have to go now and I don't have time to send my replacement that you haven't voted for yet. So I got to fucking go. But it's just him fleeing. Um, That's my guess. It's a good guess. All right. I don't think Uh, he'll believe. I I don't think he'll even I don't think even himself will will call it fleeing. I think I think Severo will come up with like a fake emergency that will get him to leave. Hmm. Okay. I, I I don't think he would flee himself, but I think he would uh, follow the howlers to something pressing. Okay. Okay. You. I mean, you don't call the howlers unless you really need them, right? Right. They're, they're kind of the the close close to chest guards. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh. So we'll move on to Ephraim, our next character here in the predictions. What's next for him now that jobs have dried up? We don't know that jobs have dried up. We know that. His his singular employer has called it quits, but there there are more employers and maybe they're going to be a little bit more dangerous, a little bit more seedy. Maybe maybe pay will be a little bit of a cut, but there's always going to be demand for something like for somebody with his skill set and a team with their skill set. Like they're going to get jobs. It just might my not name, be as cushy if you want to for him. If you want to call no. <laughs> that job cushy. Which it, it seemed comparatively cushy. Huh. Interesting. Like, yes, hard. D- difficult, but not, yeah, not um, seedy. Right. Fair. Okay. My name is Ephraim, and I have a very particular set of skills. 
and that is what i what i'm being used for instead of the story so the the next question that relates to Ephraim though is who was the mysterious benefactor who do you mustang. think was the mysterious benefactor? i think it's mustang huh okay i don't i don't know i th- i think i'd be i would genuinely surprise myself if I, if I was right but i think it'd be a really cool resolution if it ends up being mustang fair so lyria what's uh what's burning What's burning here in the scene with Lyria? Her escape vehicle, which is a ship, a boat, a boat. Yep. I think it's her escape vehicle. I think she's got to suddenly find a different way out. Okay. All right. My singular hint to you for next week is that we do immediately start with Lyria. So we will potentially resolve this quandary. But yeah, I figured. Yeah, I, I got I to gotta end on the, the cliffhanger. The way that Pierce writes this is actually pretty smart. He typically does two chapters per perspective. Mm-hmm. And kind of like gives you one as an intro and then gives you one as the cliffhanger. Then, you know, kind of he kind of beats it along in a way that works really well for our podcast. Yeah. So Fair. who was the girl that Lysander rescued and why was she heading to that known asteroid that we discussed as 1988? So th- this is truly haunting me. I know I mentioned like I th- she's she's younger than Lysander. We know that. OK. Or she is perceived as younger than Lysander. I think. Oh, but she's peerless. Correct. Shit. Shit. Okay. Okay. I've got to. I've got to work through this right now. She is a peerless okay. guard. She looks to be younger than Lysander. The last peerless guard was probably eighteen when Lysander was ten. So they're twenty-eight right now. Okay. Important clarification. Agree with you. I just want to draw the line a little bit. So if the rebellion happened, that means the Institute on Mars, Luna, and Earth have probably not had classes. However, there are institutions, institutes that we've talked about before that exist in the rim and the core. So just okay, to kind of okay. give you a little bit of like guiding info that's to, a, to help. That's a with, with, very with helpful. That's a very helpful yeah. thing to say. Okay. So it, it's... It's somebody, somebody from one of those planets. Okay. And I assume because this is a a drama series, this is the daughter of somebody that we know. Okay. (laughs) Fair. I mean, okay. Like this is, this is related to somebody that we know. It's not somebody we know yet, but it it is uh, the daughter of somebody very close, either positively or negatively to Dara. Okay, cool. I can dig. I can dig that prediction. Sounds sounds like a good time. Mm-hmm. All right. Any any other predictions? Anything else you want to say about the reading this week? Uh, Outside of the fact that you love Iron Gold, I I do. I'm really like I'm falling in love with this book. But uh, you're a butt, and that's all I have to say. Ah, uh, yes, I did. I did leave you with like th- two, three cliffhangers. Yeah, there's a cliffhanger well, with mean, Lysander. There's a cliffhanger with just Lyria, in, gen- cliffhanger just in with general. Dara. You're a butt. Okay, fine. I I actually wrote in our in our notes. I don't know if you've looked at this yet, but since like since we started I, I recording, see the I wrote a butt note. Y e r, you're a butt. I, I, is I my see, answer to you, that question. Yeah, you did give it the two T's, so I'm pleased. Yeah. Um, all, all told, good good work. Proud of this episode. So next week we will be reading through chapter eighteen. For everyone that is going to be through chapter 18 up until chapter 19, I swear to God, I've doubled, triple checked this. I'm not going to, I'm never, I'm so scared of messing this up ever again. Tim Olson is working diligently this weekend on making sure the calendar works. I said that last episode, I cut it out, but he just, he got sidetracked. It's the plan. The calendar is happening soon. (laughs) I promise. 
I promise. How long have we been talking about this internally and externally? This is why why I said we should just share the Excel document and lock it. But (laughs) here we are. So bad though. But it's easy. Uh, Mm -hmm. So anyway, Mm -hmm. regardless, next week chapter through chapter eighteen. Yes. So that's where we'll we'll leave you for the week. Uh, Continue to recommend us to any friends who you think might like the show, friends, family, everything like that. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, as Aaron has mentioned many times on our show, the one time that she was there. <laughs> uh, five stars only, uh, especially if you appreciate the show. It's a huge deal to us to leave us and write us a review. We've we've got a couple that have came in and we're very psyched for all of those. We've got a ton of you that subscribe to the show that we love. It, it's tough because, you know, Spotify is our kind of number one platform and you can't leave reviews. And so I know that this is just totally lost on you and you've done everything and you're advocating for us. We love all the interaction, too, though, on social media. Share share anything and everything that you love about Red Rising with us on uh, Words Whiskey Pod at both Twitter and Instagram. Those are going to be great places. I will mostly chat with you because i have to make sure that they aren't spoilers so they don't hit pj uh but if they aren't spoilers i do share it with pj and he interacts with plenty of people as well so sometimes i jump in without crossland knowing too and uh, true it's it's fun sowing a little bit of chaos (laughs) because (laughs) i'll i'll like interject a little comment here and there and it'll be in the middle of a conversation crossland's having and it's i find it funny yeah yeah, all of a sudden we're both talking in the same thread to one person, and it seems like we're two very different personalities at the moment. So it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, yeah, so th- those are the primary things. Beyond that, go to our website. You can actually sign up for a newsletter on our website, of which I am actually now starting to prepare. So if you want to get more information about the show or anything like that, feel free to sign up on our website, which is both linked in the description as well as available at Words. And whiskey dot show crossland. We have yeah. not. I, I I didn't know about this newsletter thing yet. Uh, we, we haven't have talked four about this subscribers. We haven't talked about it outside of the like outside of the podcast. I am talking to you about this right now in earnest. Can I write a section of the newsletter? Why not? <laughs> there's, right. there's no reason why not to. Uh, it's not going to be relevant to anything we're talking about. It's going to be just. I, I've got an idea for a section and I'll run it past you at some point. But PJ's I need to flesh drivel. It out I've yep. already I've already subtitled it. Yep. I'll, um I will I will have a just kind of strange, esoteric, rambling paragraph in the <laughs> newsletter if you allow me to do that. Of course, of course. All right, perfect. So thanks everyone so much for all of your support we we love and appreciate you so much there just simply aren't words for like how appreciated we feel. We've actually gotten enough fan mail requests at this point to actually ask for a p.o box so we're gonna have a p.o box i'm that going we might to the post facing, office which will tomorrow be i'm going to the post office tomorrow to set up a p.o box yeah wild this this was never something that i dreamed of with the show even and so so cool very excited thank you guys so much and we'll see you next week 